from Wisconsin Public Radio. This is Newsmakers. I'm Ezra Wall in our Southwest Wisconsin Bureau. We are taking a trip up the Mississippi River from La Crosse uh, today, headed to the uh, to Winona, Minnesota, to the Minnesota Marine Art Museum, where its executive director, Scott Pollock, joins us to talk about uh, not just a new exhibit coming in. We've had Scott on to talk about new exhibits before. Uh, this really is, is a whole new approach to what the Minnesota Marine Art Museum does. And they are uh, right in the uh, in the heart of our listening area and, and what an interesting experience it is to visit that place. And now we're talking about a new direction that they're taking this year. So let me welcome to Newsmakers, Scott Pollock, the Executive Director of the Minnesota Marine Art Museum. Scott, welcome back. Hey, it's terrific to be here, Ezra. I really appreciate the invitation to join you. So I've, I, I've been to your museum many times and have always enjoyed it. But uh, the last time I was there, a couple weekends ago, uh, quite, a, quite a different experience as uh, there are some really interesting new exhibits. But what made room for those new exhibits uh, is the departure of, of a lot of very familiar material. So t- talk about some of those transitions that are going on right now at the Minnesota Marine Art Museum. Like I think everything water-related, right? They always say you never walk over the same river twice when you're crossing it, right? The water shifting underneath you. And I think, you know, museums in general um, are, you know, have, have it's maybe pandemic related, um, maybe a culture shift, um, maybe a reckoning, right? After being in this business for about 600 years, let's be honest, museums have been around for a while doing much of the same type of things. Um, you know, we're, we're, you know, it's sort of a reflective moment, I think, for cultural institutions to think about how they do their work, who they do it with, and why they do it. So, I mean, what you probably experienced was, um, I think, like a lot of people um, that were coming to the museum this opening weekend, we have put together a wonderful suite of exhibits um, that sort of thematically tie together our 2023 year. Um, but the big observation was, um, I think, you know, very much this um, a sense of light, uh, a sense of openness, um, a sense of accessibility, um, a sense of, you know, high energy, right? Um, and I think some of that has to do with the uh, the, the wall colors that we paint the galleries with. <laughs> um, but a lot has to do with, of course, um, you know, the art and the types of stories that you're presenting your visiting audiences with. So um, a little bit of changes. Yeah, we we learned about a year ago um, at the Minnesota Marine Art Museum that um, really a formative collection um, uh, that the museum had had um, built its identity around, right? Let's, uh, we've been around for about 17 years operating, um, gifted um, a terrific, terrific site on the upper Mississippi River in Winona, Minnesota, um, to help shape stories around, um, uh, you know, what's our relationship to water as expressed through art has always been the, um, the red thread through the work that we do. Um, you know, and I think early on, the museum was um, blessed to have this terrific collection um, um, that really focused on a lot of European and American masterpieces and approaches to to doing that work. So we had a terrific collection of Hudson River School paintings, for example, um, that were on loan to the museum. And we had built um, an expansion around that particular collection. The same thing, you know, I think the museum's um, been doing this work for, again, the past 17 years is... Um, presenting not only what marine art is, but what it can be. So a classic set of marine paintings with ships on water had quickly evolved into um, a a tad of Monet here, a little bit of a Picasso here, and a touch of a Chagall here. All works that really centered on a conversation around water. Now Chagall, Monet, um, 
and Picasso never thought of themselves as marine artists, or maybe even thought of themselves as displaying um, their work at a small museum in Winona, Minnesota, called the Minnesota Marine Art Museum. However, it worked, right? Um, the institution built its identity around these um, significant, as we identify as masterpieces in the canon, um, as a place you can come and have an experience with their work up close and personal um, in a much more yeah, intimate way. So that was the big identity shift for us. Um, that particular collection and collectors have um, decided to reevaluate what they're collecting um, and took their collection and brought that back onto the private market. This is not new for a lot of early, you know, smaller museums, um, fledgling museums that are coming out and starting. Um, oftentimes there's relationships built with private collectors and um, there will be a well, moment. And that's something that I don't mean to interrupt you, but that's something that a lot of people might not know. Like you walk mm -hmm. into the museum and you see what's hanging on the wall. And obviously there are special exhibits that, that are, uh, that are curated from uh, artists for one reason or another, that those things are there, especially for a particular amount of time. But, uh, and, and there may be other parts and, and the Minnesota Marine Art Museum has this as well, items that are owned by the museum and part of your permanent collection. But there are things that exist at museums anywhere in the world that live there uh, for what seems like forever. But really mm -hmm. it's, it's material that is owned by someone outside of the, the museum and it's there on loan. And that's, yes. that's what happened. A lot of the material that was on loan to your museum uh, exactly. isn't there anymore. What is yeah. that like as the, as the almost brand new director of the museum, when you mm -hmm. found out that that collection would be departing, like what goes through your mind at first? I, I know now you've turned it into really fantastic opportunities, but there must've been some moments of, Oh, stuff we can't say on the radio. <laughs> exactly. Shuck, uh, shoot. And a sense of loss, no question, Ezra, right? It really is. It was, uh, it, it's a heart blow. I think uh, a lot of people who built, um, you know, the Museum of Gans identity built around those particular works of art and educators who spent and poured countless hours of um, time helping connect, you know, audiences of all ages, elementary school groups coming through and um, creating and crafting narratives for allowing our rural audiences to appreciate and get in touch with this incredible works of art. You know, all of that is pulled out from underneath, um, uh, you know, feels like a blank, you know, like the blanket when you're, the, I guess the tablecloth in the wine glass sits sometimes, you know, that's not easy. That that's hard on people. And it is, it's like anything that you um, go deep with. Uh, I would say definitely a sense of loss. Um, you know, and I think that there's moments, right? We all go through moments of loss, um, whether it's somebody you love or it's something you love, like art. <laughs> and it's something that you've come to um, come to rely on, right? Museums are trusted places for you to go back to, to have an experience, a transformative, memorable, enjoyable, whatever it is. But it's nice to count on that, isn't it? And museums do a great job at that. I mean, this is why we have collections. This is why we have the responsibility for keeping these in perpetuity and taking care of them. And so when that favorite artwork um, is no longer in the gallery, you notice it. It's a gap. And I think like a lot of losses or a lot of gaps, um, there comes the opportunity. And I think you're starting to hit on that, Ezra. It's kind of what you started to see this weekend at the museum. And I will say without throwing it all out, <laughs> the museum has really been blessed to grow a collection of 170 paintings, visual, you know, 
two-dimensional paintings um, that are pretty well known. There are some big names within our own museum collection that we're continuing to present and present in new ways. And we have to think that through as well as developing new relationships um, with other institutions to bring those classical canon-based works of art back to the museum because we are fortunate. We have an incredible six acre site, 20,000 square feet dedicated to presenting some of the world's you know, most important masterpieces, if you still wanna call those that, and environments to do that within. So why not lean into that? Why not get on the horn and connect with our museum colleagues, whether they're on the East Coast, West Coast, or overseas internationally, and address the question of, well, we know you have large collections sitting in the basement that haven't been displayed to the public. You know, we have this unique story to tell. It's really simple. Great art inspired by water. We could be a venue for you to bring those works of art out of basements and into communities like ours, our region, and continue to do the work that we've been doing for the past 17 years. So this is a little bit of the strategy thinking that this loss required us to address. So as you, as the director of the museum, and you know, uh, marshalling all of these resources that you just talked about, are mm -hmm. talking about turning the page, kind of moving in a new direction now. Uh, talk a little bit about that thought process. I think that this, it's, a, it's a question, again, that other cultural institutions, arts organizations are asking, and it comes down to how do we continue to be relevant? How do we continue to offer audiences something that they can wrestle with, think about, walk away with, thinking differently about the world? And um, for us, um, it's sort of, you know, unlocking, I see it. I, we talk a lot about this in the museum world, the, the generative capacity or the catalyst of why we do what we do, right? Art on the wall is one thing, but I think there's a responsibility for cultural institutions to have it generate, create something new, um, build new relationships, think about the world again differently. And that was really a new through line for us. And we asked ourselves, well, what is the, what are those conversations and how does art inspired by water um, what does that offer us, right? What does that make, how, how can we stand out? How can we really lean into that conversation starter? And so we put our heads together, particularly um, around a couple themes that we'd like to focus and create that red thread um, and present a stronger narrative from year to year. So, um, you know, if, if, yeah, this year we really um, thought about well, one of the things we've, you know, we, we've observed is our audiences that come to the Minnesota Marine Art Museum, roughly about 30,000 plus visitors a year, traveling from all 50 plus states. Um, we have international visitors who are coming off cruise lines, making their way up the Mississippi River, um, travelers down coming down from um, the Minneapolis metro area, Chicago, Milwaukee, Madison, and everybody that comes and discovers this place as well as the residents who have made this place home, all have something in common, and it has to do with a sense of place. There is absolutely, as we know in this region, nothing like the Driftless region, right? Like it is a geographic wonder of the world, and it's fluid. It's created and shaped by the Mississippi River, which we sit on. So we thought a lot about that, and we thought, well, you know, we know the um, one of our paintings, which, you know, we have a couple actually historic, gorgeous, turn-of-the-century impressionist works of art that depict the landscape, you know, between La Crosse and Winona. Um, really powerful work. Um, you know, we, we really wanted to lean into that and say, well, what if we tied together a series of exhibits that brought people 
a little closer to thinking about what's under their feet, um, what plants are around them, what birds are singing. And we wove together this theme called Flora and Fauna. And then, you know, who's doing that both internationally, regionally, locally, and how can we tie together a series of exhibits that will allow people to say, you know, this is definitely a, a, a sense of wonder, right? This is a sense of place. Um, and art, art has, art, art artist has the potential to unlock that for us. It allows us to look at the world a little different, whether we care for it a little deeper, or there's a little bit more compassion about caring, you know, knowing what's around you. And so we feel like we set up a, a series of exhibits that are doing that right now. You talked about uh, flora and fauna uh, being sort of the uh, the uniting threads. And and as I was walking through the museum the other weekend, lots of flora, and <laughs> and uh, some some wonderful exhibits. Uh, from people all over, but not, but but also um, artists with really strong connections to our area, yeah. um, it, not not just subject matter connections to our area, but people who have deep roots in uh, in as as you said this area between La Crosse and Winona, and and more broadly throughout the Driftless area in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Talk about mm-hmm. some of those uh, some of those artists that you're able to feature now. Absolutely, yeah. It's um, we really wanted to go deep and uh, yeah, get connect people connected to, to to the stories of the region. And we started right with um, and one of the things you I, I just want to comment that you you know you're noticing. Now you're starting, you're, you're really noticing the veins on the leaf that you walk by every day a little closer, right? Like, why is it cut that way? Like, what does its root structures do? And these artists help visualize that for us and help us not think of, you know, we can't look, we can't walk out of the museum and, and, and think about the world around us um, uh, the same way anymore, right? And one of those artists is Ian Hainsworth, who is um, one of the exhibiting space. We have a gallery devoted to Ian's work. Um Ian is um, a native of Winona, Minnesota, believe it or not, who has gone on to have a really terrific um, emerging artist career, graduating from the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, um, has been featured and brought in through the um, Walker Arts Center's uh, Minnesota Artist Writing Program, published internationally, and is starting to present their work, um, really focusing on um, printed fabrics using plants, bringing plants onto printed fabrics that are dyed with plant material themselves. Sounds very much like um, uh, something you might encounter at a coffee house, which you might, but Ian's work takes this to an entirely new different level. Um, And we were just really excited to know that Ian started their career in Winona as a fourth grade art student coming to the Minnesota Marine Art Museum when it was just evolving. Wow. (laughs) What a connection. <laughs> that really helped our our education team um, really understand the impact museums can have on people. Um, you know, when they're, you know, you have a group, a school group come in and you're reading books about, um, you know, water and plants and animals and art. And, you know, to f- discover, rediscover the, that person having a full artistic career, really successful, you know, 20 plus years later, and then invite them into doing an entire gallery installation around their body of work. Um, that has a lot of power. That has a lot of resonance. And that's where we really wanted to start and celebrate with our community. And I could tell you 250 people plus a sold out audience to capacity filled that room Friday night when we opened that show alongside some pretty incredible other international artists doing similar work. Yeah. 
was it was uh, interesting. Uh, Ian's work, uh, not the not the only textiles uh, and and sort of mixed media like that featured in the. I have no idea if I'm using the right terms. I was a music major, but um, <laughs> the, it's uh, not the only uh, such uh, things featured in in the museum. But I remember, uh, was it last year? You had the exhibit from Hmong artists and uh, and the the wonderful textile work uh, from that community and and everything so intricate and and this this uh some of their stuff telling stories in the in the creative way that they did that but but a lot of their work very precise uh very very precise lines and things that are cut perfectly and, and sewn together very intricately and and very colorful and beautiful and when i looked at ian's work it was almost like they were uh using those textiles as mm-hmm. like almost like painting with mm-hmm. with textiles and it was very mm-hmm. v- both both wonderfully uh, valid and deep but very very different absolutely yeah we know that artists have been leaning into you know readily made materials to do their artwork on for years and some really successful artists have done that um really well but you know textiles talk about that for a brief moment here you know museums who um you know our museum's identity was really built around large can like large works of oil on canvas um mm-hmm. and we had this early departure last year when we presented a gallery that um yeah as you you got to see at the the Hmong textile show and here's needlepoint on you know needlepoint right like like accomplishing next level thought changing thought provoking really enjoyable aesthetically pleasing experiences much as you know those large oil paintings um we had in- incredible audiences just droves of people turning out for that show and you're right i mean this is this is a, this is a way artists continue to push and bend and rethink um especially when we start to just open up and give them opportunities to present their work so um it's nice to have a little bit of balance of oil on canvas and printed textiles that are dyed with fabrics or from plants that have grown right on the site. So that was kind of a little bit of a deep moment for us. And I, I appreciate that. Yeah, you definitely took and yeah, you like the other visitors are are, are definitely noticing. Yeah. We're going to we're going to continue our conversation with Scott Pollock, who's the executive director of the Minnesota Marine Art Museum, uh, in just a second, and and we'll find out uh, more specifically uh, what what is on display at the museum and what's coming up throughout the year at the Minnesota Marine Art Museum. If you'd like to get in touch with our show, I'd love to hear from you. You can always reach us at newsmakers at wpr.org. That's newsmakers at wpr.org. We're continuing our conversation with Scott in just a moment. It's Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. Wisconsin Public Radio, it's Newsmakers. I'm Ezra Wall in our Southwestern Wisconsin Bureau, and we are uh, traveling slightly up the river uh, to to uh, southeastern Minnesota, to Winona, and uh, the the Minnesota Marine Art Museum, where Scott Pollock is uh, is joining us. Scott, we've been talking uh, more philosophically about this new direction that the museum uh, is taking. We've got about 10 minutes left in our conversation, so I want to take an opportunity to just talk about how that looks uh, specifically, you've got uh, some really special exhibits uh, that are that are on display at the museum. 
right now, including one that just took my absolute breath away. Uh, these, uh, these, uh, are they, are they ceramic bowls or are they porcelain bowls or what the wonderful, wonderful, uh, uh, sculpted, uh, bowls that, that you have on display there in the gallery. It's, it's the, it's the one just to the right when you walk in the door. Well, actually we have a reveal moment, you know, <laughs> um, that's part of the ma magicianship of, um, cur cur the curatorial team at the Minnesota Marine Art Museum, right? We, we have a gorgeous, um, display, um, you know, I think a 2000 square foot gallery that features what seemingly isn't a lot, 16 porcelain ceramics um, uh, bowls um, uh, that are shaped and sculpted, um, featuring the smallest details of plants, um, you know, small leaf sprigs that are built one on top of each other. And these all came to us by way of an artist who's getting a lot of attention, um, some new acquisitions at the VNA, um, the Victoria and Albert Museum, the British Museum just got their some new works of theirs. Hitomi Hisono is is her name. Um, Hitomi is actually London based, um, represented by um, Adrian Sassoon Gallery, and um, and is doing some incredible work. Japanese born and raised, coming out of a really long standing tradition of um, uh, fine delicate ceramics and really built their entire career around an English um, way of building and sculpting. Um, uh, we, we call it, you know, I, I think a lot of people know it as Jasper Ware, um, which was the Wedgwood, Wedgwood design um, that does bring our attention all, you know, it's the exterior of each of each of these gorgeous vessels. Again, it's hard to talk about a bowl as something that might take your breath away, but they do. Um, the detail, the color, um, the, the fine, delicate white porcelain on the exterior and the gold leaf interior. Um, some of her bowls will, um, you, as you, as you peer deeper into them, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're, yeah, you almost want to, yeah, you're starting to see the details of leaves and light and color on the inside of the bowls. Um, so it's a pretty, it was a nice magic moment for us to be able to reach out and have as much of a conversation about, um, you know, our local artist like Ian Hainsworth, who is doing this work with fabrics, take a big departure in a gallery adjacent and look at a different format like sculptural um, works, bowls, um, and ceramics, and then also have this international um, um rock star come to Winona, Minnesota and put those two works of art, you know, uh, in adjacent galleries. And it's just such a pleasurable experience to go from one 2000 square foot space to the other and start to see the connections and celebrate the difference. And that's a little bit more, again, about the philosophy we're, we're approaching our work with. Yeah. Another really interesting uh, exhibit is uh, this is, is uh, you, you have a, a book uh, of uh, wonderful, wonderful, uh, I don't know what what the artistic style is. They're they're uh, pages uh, filled with the most colorful birds and and plants and whatever. And you can there's a more recent reprinting of the book that you can actually flip through. Uh, but the 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 actual original copy of the thing is is under glass and no one can touch it rightly so. But you can also walk around the gallery and and see a lot of these uh, works uh, on the on the wall. And they feature the uh, the bird and flower prints of uh, you're going to have to help me with the artist's name. Is it Keenan Imau? Keenan Imau. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely a, um, a pretty terrific body of work. We were able to work with a, um, the largest, I think, uh, Japanese art collector and gallery um, based out of New York, um, Ronan Gallery, to bring um, a historic set of woodblock um, uh, uh, woodcut 
prints um, to, to the museum and sort of sandwich that between Ian's work, very contemporary, again, work on textiles and um, Hitomi Hosono ceramics from Japan. And really sort of, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually stunning. I mean, what these artists were able to accomplish um, without the technologies that we have today, um, you can't not, not really fall in love with the detail of, again, leaf structure, color, floral arrangements in their natural settings as birds are sort of weaving in and out of them and the details of feathers and wings and colors of beaks. And I mean, it is just another, another moment, right? Where it's, it's, it's taking these historic giants in the art world um, and pairing them with, you know, contemporary artists who are doing similar work today um, and then artists who are right in our backyard um, and sort of celebrating that as a collective whole, right? And we did it all under this banner of flora. Um, so that, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you noticed. Yeah, those are those are pretty incredible works. I, I love it. Later in this show, uh, in fact, uh, coming up in the next segment, we're going to hear from uh, an author and an artist. The uh, author is Amy Nizuka Matatil, and the illustrator is Fumi Nakamura. And uh, and their uh, the 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 exhibit is Fumi's. Uh, drawings and paintings that are from Amy's uh, book of of a couple of years ago uh, that uh, that we'll hear about in the next segment. But it's in this in it's in this new gallery that you have uh, made uh, featuring art related to literature. Talk about that idea and and how you thought about that. Yeah, this is another um, one new departure, right? Like all of these opportunities have opened up different ways of thinking about our work. Uh, as when I came to the the museum, I, I you know I was just fell in love with the gallery that was adjacent closest to the river. Um, it's a gorgeous, um, almost three thousand square foot space, and um, you know I think that I, I spent some time in the Nordic countries, uh, uh, you know, um, and you know where the publishing world is so strong. It's such a part of the art scene, and it's it is you know in Minnesota it's the same thing. We have you know, the three strongest independent presses doing all this incredible work of bringing authors and illustrators together to publish really beautiful works of art, um, you know, that gained the attention of the New York Times, Barnes and Noble's Book of the Year. Um, and, you know, it quickly allowed me to think through as we thought about that theme, um, you know, um, flora and fauna, well, who's doing that work, right? And so that was, um, um, obviously it was this, this book that was published in 2022 called world of wonders, um, that was published by milkweed editions based out of Minneapolis. Um, again, went on to the, become the, you know, fifth, um, top selling book in the New York times bestseller list. Um, and it's really gorgeous. I mean, they had a nice departure, Amy and Fumi collectively taking a new look at, as I read it, short story, um, and, and small illustration format. Um, that are connecting people to the, you know, wondrous astonishments of the natural world, like the things that you could walk through a suburb in Ohio and not notice, all the way to, you know, the deep sea underwater um, transparent fish we can't see, and making it really accessible for readers, right? Um, Amy, both of um, Southeast East Asian descent um, are taking a whole new approach um, uh, toward their work, right? For the first time here are, um, you know, authors of color, illustrators of color, um, talking about their natural surroundings in ways that people haven't yet had a chance to um, uh, to really dive into. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Annie Dillard and the work that um, Annie was able to do right in in the late 70s and 80s and really get us, you know, part of the environmental movement, getting us to think and see a little deeper about the natural world around us. 
well, it's interesting because Amy and Fumi are doing this in a, in a new way for us, right? As, um, as we're becoming a little bit more inclusive and thinking about um, different ways of how people connect to the natural world. It doesn't always have to be the big retreat or wilderness outing. It could be that everyday observation of what's around you. Um, and I will say both Amy and Fumi have done that super successfully. So the, the actual installation um, features small graphite pen illustrations of the different plants and animals that are featured in the book. Everything from those strange ribbon eels to axolotls to, oh my gosh, whalefish, sharks, um, you know, these imaginative things that will blow both the eight-year-old's mind and the 88-year-old's mind, right? And Fumi does it in such an intimate way. I mean, I could look at these, put these side by side with some of the, you know, world's most accomplished naturalists. I mean, I've seen that work before. I've seen original illustrations by by Audubon. I've seen il original illustrations by Linnaeus. And it's like, it's, it's like looking at that in a whole new fresh set of eyes, you know, a whole new fresh light. And Fumi does that so wonderful. And the book has just been, you know, put together and produced and published so gorgeously. And then Amy's short story format. So for us as a museum, um, it was yet another chance for us to say beyond the literary or beyond the visual arts, are there other mediums where great art in, is inspired by water that we can make space for? Um, and we did that. So this is a new gallery again, space that's dedicated to, we will put this into rotation that are is going to feature different authors and illustrators, books, publishing houses, all of their efforts, right. To help us connect a little bit deeper and understand our relationship to water. So um, it's, it works great for a visual arts museum. Again, done really well in the Nordic countries. I will say I lifted that from my time, you know, being in, you know, Helsinki, Stockholm, it just seemed like everywhere I would go, um, you just like bump into really wonderfully produced exhibits that pull apart the book form and bring together author illustrators. So it's a magic moment when it happens. And I'm so glad you had some time to spend with um, Amy and Fumi talking about their work. So uh, our, our conversation uh, is drawing to a close. So I want to give you an opportunity to uh, let people know where they can find out more information. Uh, there's always something going on at the museum, uh, including uh, musical events and, and uh, special tours through the galleries and activities for the kids and all, all sorts of things going on. So where can people find information about what's, what's up at the Minnesota Marine Art Museum? For sure, Ezra. You can always go on to that www. Uh, org is our, is our, is our website. Um, you can follow us, uh, Minnesota Marine Art Museum, look that up on Instagram and Facebook. We have a super dynamic set of programs, um, a lot more special events. This is all new for us coming out right a year ago when things were, um, not still under lockdown, but definitely not where we are, um, uh, you know, running at the pace we are today. So like you mentioned, lots of different programs, special events, a book, you know, author talks, book signings, things for kids, adult nights out. I mean, it's all there. So it's coming together. We are have a pretty ambitious um, um, program schedule for 2023. I hope people can check that out. Scott Pollock is the executive director of the Minnesota Marine Art Museum. Scott, thanks for joining us again on Newsmakers. Really appreciate this, Ezra. Nice conversation. Thank you. It's Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, you can find us. It's, uh, it's newsmakers at WPR.org. And if you missed part of our conversation today, or you'd like to find a previous episode, they're all on our website, which is WPR.org slash newsmakers. That's WPR.org slash newsmakers. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking to author Amy Nazuko Matatil and illustrator Fumi Nakamura about their new book, 
world, well, it's, it's, it's new-ish, but we're going to be talking to them about their book, World of Wonder, in praise of fireflies, whale sharks, and other astonishments. That's next on Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. From Wisconsin Public Radio, this is Newsmakers. I'm Ezra Wall. We've been talking about the Minnesota Marine Art Museum today. Scott Pollock joined us, and if you'd like to catch part of that conversation that you might have missed, it's online at wpr.org newsmakers, along with the rest of the shows that uh, we have done throughout the years. You can find them at wpr.org newsmakers. We're talking now about a book called World of Wonders in praise of fireflies, whale sharks, and other astonishments. And I got to see uh, several of the illustrations from this book in person. They are, they are hanging at the Minnesota Marine Art Museum. And that's where I met the book's author, Amy Nizukumatatil, who is a poet and author of several collections of poetry uh, and a, a, a professor of English at the University of Mississippi. Also uh, with us was illustrator Fumi Mini Nakamura, uh, who illustrated uh, the animals and plants depicted in World of Wonders. It's an interesting book, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm curious about how this collaboration got started. Amy, I know you were working on a book. I know, Fumi, you are working as an illustrator. And, and, and how did... How did uh, how did uh, the two of you get paired up? Let's start with Amy. Sure, yeah. I knew that I wanted this book to be illustrated as an homage to the books that I read from the 60s and 70s um, that featured uh, animals and plants. They didn't have high-tech photography. Uh, they were very much um, illustrated. Um, and I searched and searched the web, searched different um, Instagram art accounts. Um, none of them had that kind of uh, realness and movement that I was looking for and um, just a little bit of whimsy but all still made you feel like you wanted to uh, look up more about the animal um, so for me there was once I came across Fumi's Instagram account actually um, you know uh, there was a list of, of several kind of like maybe maybe we should try this maybe we'll look into this um, Fumi was just the number one I mean I just there was no other her portfolio was so stunning, um, so there was no other choice for me on that one. <laughs> so, Fumi, what was it, what 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 was going through your mind uh, in terms of thinking about your career or thinking about your art when when you started getting hooked up with Amy and this project? Um, I think I was just thinking as a career too. It was this is actually full uh, first uh, fully illustrated book. Most of the time, it's like just a cover or very small things. So this was like a, definitely a big career change. For me, I mean, how it happened and what has led us mm -hmm. together. So um, at that time, I was definitely, yeah, I think I was on career, I guess, yeah. And I was just like, we're well, doing this. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really simple. I was like, I was like, this sounds like a great project. <laughs> so uh, as, an, as an artist, um, I, I've walked through the museum. I've seen all of your illustrations, and they're just wonderful. As, as an artist, uh, a lot of people... Uh, think of that as somebody who whose creativity comes like completely out of their own mind and completely out of their own 
ideas or, or work or whatever. How do you make art that, that is still, like how do you keep ownership of that process when, you're, uh, when, when someone else is kind of setting the agenda like they do when you're illustrating somebody else's literary work? Um, that is a really good question because it's, it's part of the struggle. <laughs> um, and I think I try to envision what the client, in this case, Amy, was trying to, I mean, it can go one way or another. And I was afraid it was like, usually when I do rough sketches, it's just so loose that it doesn't translate. And then I feel like a lot of time would be surprised for a lot of people. And I was definitely gambling down. It's just like, I hope she like it. And then just kind of went with it. But I just wanted to keep this like, the, the feeling that Amy was trying to explain through words. And then just like, there is just, like they're just like definitely see like a sunny side in her words to like a very also like you know there there is a real like not darkness but it's like a feeling that it's just definitely like we all have that can connect to so it's just trying to translate incorporate that into drawing amy when when you're working on a book like this all the the chapter headings the different section headings uh, a lot of them have the like the name of an animal the name of a plant and then uh the the work is is your reflection on that and, and what it means to you in your life how do you think you approach writing about our environment and writing about the natural world like as a poet like how does a poet approach that differently than a scientist i definitely want there to be kind of a snap crackle pop of music i want it to be pleasurable when you say these stories out loud um poetry is a um is an audio art form as well it shouldn't just be living on, only on the page. So um, I read all of my, when I'm revising, I read all of my sentences out loud. So this was not just a book of whimsy. I mean, this is from a lifetime of reading. Um, things were fact-checked to make sure that I was remembering correctly and I wanted to get measurements right. I had no intention of deceiving anybody. So I wanted to actually get these biologically correct, and yet at the same time, I'm writing from my own perspective, um, with my own life. So I wanted to get that as accurate as possible. So many times I had to call up either my parents or friends to say, did this happen? What do you remember about this moment? Um, again, there's no joy in deceiving anybody for me. So. I wanted to get be emotionally true as well. So not just biologically true, I wanted to be emotionally true to myself as well. Because at the end of the day, I have to look in the mirror and say, did I render this as accurately as possible? Not just through metaphor, not just through simile, but um, is, it a, is it a story? I had to use storytelling techniques. So it's I could just talk about the narwhal and all of its, um, you know, measurements and size and its habitat, that's what scientists can do. But for a poet, how does that make you feel when you see this um, giant animal swim upside down and start to open its mouth on the way, for example, narwhals eat, it's a giant vacuum. So that's a little terrifying. I, I, to me, as a human, that's terrifying. I did not know that, for example, um, before I started becoming obsessed with narwhals. Uh, I did not know that the what people think of as a horn is actually a tooth that just grows out of the narwhal's um, mouth area. Uh, so it's like a very big buck tooth, you know, uh, uh, protrusion from it from its head, you know. Um, so I wanted to bring that delight and curiosity and awe 
um, in, in my tellings. It's not just, oh, I wanted to be the facts. I also wanted it to be exciting. I wanted there to be drama and tension. And I wanted there to be, uh, I wanted this book to start and end with love. Fumi, as you're drawing these characters, uh, obviously you can find photographs of a lot of this, uh, this, these uh, uh, plants and animals and different things and, and sort of try to duplicate them. How do you uh, go about trying to incorporate uh, some, some creativity or personality, I guess, into that and not, not just a, a, a rote copy of, of uh, like the, the scientific specifics of they're this tall and they have this many feathers and whatever? They are, I think in something, doing something like this illustration, it has to be, something has to be accurate. Um, but I, at the same time, I, I don't, I mean, as much as accurate, there's always something about it. Like, I probably project my feelings or like Amy's feeling is projected to me from the writing. And those are like kind of incorporated into, so it's not completely accurate, like from like exact copy of the, from a phot- photograph of, video I've seen from like research um, and I think that maybe that's kind of what I've, happens at the end when you see the finished product um, so I don't want to always copy exactly same thing because it doesn't really I mean I just like how we see colors differently some people see the color being like oh that's more red or it's like that's more blue and then that kind of it's just not the color blindness we're talking about but people just see things differently and I think that's kind of how each illustration kind of became at the end of it was like from research and then the experience and everything together I, I, I heard uh, an artist and illustrator talk that you both gave uh, earlier today and um, you were talking there about representation Amy mm-hmm. And how important that is. Talk to me uh, uh, briefly about about why that's so important that you and Fumi are working together on this project and not two other people. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and thank you so much for that question. I mean, I think just in terms of representation, um, the the poems and essays that I want to bring into this world, I want it to reflect. The times that we're living in and you know this is 2023 not 1953 so I am very purposeful about what I include in my work and for me that is people with different skin tones you know I want uh, I'm thinking of my kids now who are teenagers I want them to have access to art featuring people who um, have different family units than what they lived with. Um, they see people who move differently than they do. Maybe um, they see um, art from people who are in wheelchairs, um, people who have different economic backgrounds than we do, um, because that's the world that I want to live in. It's so beautiful when there's so much difference. And I think too often the powers that be want to highlight difference in humans as fearsome. That's something that we should be afraid of or distrustful of. Um, and that is something so unnatural. There's nothing on the planet that survives without reliance or dependence on each other. So I'm very distrustful when we have government leaders who say, we need to protect us or make us great. Um, and don't worry about other people. That's the most unnatural thing that you could do. No, um, swamp grass, no, nothing in the prairie survives just by itself. Um, 
So I just wanted to kind of reflect the world that I want to live, that I do live in, and that I want my kids to live in. And that is diverse, full of differences, and it's not all happy joy. There are there is sadness there, as well. So I didn't want to shy away from that. But I, it was very important for me to tell these stories um, as an Asian American woman who loves pop music, who loves makeup, who has crushes, who enjoys spending time with a husband, who isn't resentful of kids, who also misses her parents. I mean, where were those stories? I never saw them growing up. So I just, uh, I know they're out there, but I, it, it would be against my own nature if I didn't include that as well. That, um, you know, while Whitman says, do I contain multitudes? We should contain multitudes. We should be complex characters. We should not be highlighting the stories of people who are just um, have one vision and don't really seem to hang out with people that are different than them. Amy, you've been writing this book since uh, since mid last decade, oh. and uh, and you've been working together on on this book has been kind of in the works for the last few years. It's been it's been out for a couple of years now. Um, there must have been uh, some communication between you, but I understand n no meetings, no Zoom, no like traveling to see each other, no like talking on the phone. No, no. When did you actually meet? We actually just met yesterday at breakfast here. 10.30 a.m. in a hotel. That was it. So yeah. it was, yeah, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, this is a really first time meeting. We kept saying, like, we're excited to see each other. But, yeah, it just kind of happened, and it was, here we are. <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of, you know, um, I mean, I don't know. I did a lot of research and a lot of investigating um, artists' portfolios and things like that, and I just had a hunch. I just thought this is the the one artist who can bring my vision to life, and um, it's, a, it's a little chance you have to take, but I also... That's how confident I was that, that, that Femi would, would be able to see my work and also still put her own um, unique talent and vision to the, the page too. This is definitely, uh, it's not a collaboration in the traditional sense, but it's absolutely a collaboration of um, what it's like to feel a little bit on the outside growing up. Um, you know, I was born in the States, but I was always a little bit on the outside looking, observing, watching, and being quiet. Now I'm a professor of English now, but um, I grew up very much observing and just watching human nature and watching, uh, that's how I survived, you know, honestly. There was plenty of times, I talk about this in the book, where, you know, I was too nervous to be in the cafeteria and I would eat in a bathroom stall, you know, because I was too scared and, and worried about what my white classmates would think. Um, and so much. Yeah, yeah. it's such a stress in front of people sometimes, it just is. because like the tension you get and, yeah, and sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I didn't know any of this directly about Fumi, but I thought if there's anybody who could get it, it would be Fumi. And um, at the same time, I was also class president in another year, you know, so it's, this is not just one, a one-faceted story. This is how humans are. There are many complications and many, you can be one thing one year and another thing another year and that's how humans grow and that's how humans are so it was also frustrating to see the way asian americans were represented if they were at all in media it was very much like a comedy or a stereotype i'm thinking of movies like 16 candles where there was a 
a, a foreign exchange student, every time he spoke, his name was Long Duck Dong. And <laughs> do, you, do you know this movie? Yeah, every time he spoke, there would be a gong ringing out. I mean, that was, that was supposed to be like, yeah, and I remember kind of laughing along with my white classmates, but that's not great if that's the only Asian you see on TV, you know? So I very much wanted to include um, a multi-dimensional character who was me on the page, you know? And, and I think you could see that in the drawings of Fumi as well. They're, they're complex, they're not cartoons, they're very intricate. What, what's that like as an artist, seeing your, uh, your drawings hanging on the walls of a museum? Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for saying all this positive oh, thing because I'm. It's true. It's I I I get like some I feel compressed because I'm so shy when it comes. I mean, compliments like I'm trying to work on it, but it's this is another a level of like feeling pressure. Not like in a good way, but at the same time, I feel like uh, like uh, I don't know what to do. Like it's it's both a great feeling, but also at the same time. Um, I really couldn't do this without Amy. So being with here with her, sharing this, you know, conversations and learning more about her, out, you know, outside the book, and then doing this conversation together, really bringing it to the next level that I could not imagine. It's like, so it really feels more like a, in this form. It feels like very celebrating. It's a very happy feeling, um, and it's just it's just not my work. It's also Amy's work. That's like it's help. We just it just feels like a really great togetherness that we could form. That even though we didn't talk or like we kind of respected each other's space, <laughs> and we just met. But it's just a very magical moment that I never really felt in any other um, setting like this. Well, I, I certainly appreciate you giving me a little bit of extra time uh, today. Amy Nazuku Matatil and uh, Fumi Nakamura. Uh, Amy's the author of Worlds of Wonders in Praise of Fireflies, Whale Sharks, and Other Astonishments. And, uh, and Fumi is the illustrator of that book. I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. You. It was a pleasure. And Fumi's illustrations, along with some of Amy's writings, are on display uh, in that uh, gallery at the Minnesota Marine Art Museum, and the book is called World of Wonders in Praise of Fireflies, Whale Sharks, and Other Astonishments. This is Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. Our show is produced by Kate Spranger, and I'm Ezra Wall. I hope you join us again next time. There are a couple of opportunities to hear the show every week, though. Uh, you can check us out Friday mornings at 10 on the Ideas Network 90.3 and Friday nights at 7 on NPR News and Music 88.9. You can always get in touch with us. Send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Newsmakers at WPR.org. That's newsmakers at WPR.org. Dot org. Until next time, this is Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio.